0: Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, joined as always by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you?
1: I'm fine, thank you.
0: Richard, speaking of the Hoover Institution, there's an interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today. We're recording this on September 8th, the day after Labor Day. The headline is, The Fed Puts Its Independence on the Line. It's written by your colleague, my former colleague, Kevin Warsh. He offers some thoughts on the Federal Reserve what it's doing right, what it's doing wrong, and what it's doing too much of. Have you read the op-ed? And if so... What are your thoughts on his view of the Federal Reserve in modern law and politics?
1: Yeah, I did read the review, and I think there's some points that I agree with and some points not. I mean, oddly enough, I've actually had some direct engagement with the Fed when I worked on the case involving the Durham Amendment, and they had to make critical decisions as to the regulations of the permissible rate of return and got something from the inside. And of course, one starts to see them from the outside. But let's go right back to the beginning, I think. Uh, And this will put some of this stuff. Uh, essentially, as far as I'm concerned, the ideal model for the Fed is somebody which looks at only one thing and tries to reduce its discretion. Uh, There is a formula out there known as the Taylor formula. I won't bore people with the details, but essentially what it is, it's a kind of a mechanical way which could be generally used so as to figure out what you want the federal funds rate to be in order to keep your optimal level of discretion. And you get a bunch of numbers, you plug them in, and you sort of come up with an answer. And the great advantage of that particular situation is it gives you some degree of continuity between administrations, and it allows you to look at observable numbers. Uh, The numbers are, of course, all public in some sense, and that means that every private party, which has the same information as the Fed does, could make better estimations of what's going on uh, so that you will have essentially a more informed dialogue. The standard objection to using the Taylor formula, Taylor, by the way, is John Taylor of the Hoover Institution and the Stanford Economics department is uh, you have things like 2008 where markets start to break in very rapid fashion. And a simple formula like that may not be enough to bail you out under these circumstances, to which there's an answer. You're absolutely right. It may not be very good to doing that. But if you try to go by the wit of man, it may well be that you take a difficult situation and make it even worse. So it's just not clear oh, whether the Taylor formula fails under times of crisis or whether or not every formula or every approach fails. So that seems to be one way. But if you look at the mandate that the Fed has, it's not only to control interest rates and stabilize the currency, it's also to deal something with respect to jobs. And generally speaking, one indicator cannot do two things. If the job side of this thing says you've got to ease up and the monetary side says you've got to tighten up, you have to figure out which of the two to follow what way to give to each of them. So my view is that when you're talking about the Fed, you want to get it out of the job business and let that be handled by dealing with various kinds of labor regulations, including the National Labor Relations Act, Fair Labor Standards Act, and a variety of other things which have direct impact on it. And so, when they start doing it in this particular way, uh, there is no question that the more discretion they have, are the more politics. The ambiguity I see in the warsh piece is in some cases he's saying, well, the institutional role is is simply too vast and I agree with this Congress has given the fed too many things that it has to do. The more political things that ask it to do, the more they're likely to try to lean on them to get rid of its faunted independence. And I think that's a mistake. But on the other hand, part of what he's saying is, you know, this is a very chancy business and they make lots of mistakes. And you could make bad decisions when you have good institutions, even though you're more likely to make them when you have bad institutions. So you're never quite sure which way you would want this thing to go. There is, of course, a statement he makes there that somehow the Wall Street likes the Fed. It thinks It's its friend. I'm not sure that that's correct. Wall Street seems to me to be a rather complicated operation, lots of internal conflicts of interest. Main Street, which is often represented by Wall Street, has the same kinds of conflicts. So I think it's a little bit too simple to say Wall Street's on one side, Main Street's on the other side. I also think that there's a kind of as a policy issue, and I think he agrees with this, is there's only so many times you could go to the stimulus well in order to get things right. Um, It's like you become anesthetized to it. So the first time you do it, it may have a bounce the second time, less so. The third time, probably, it's going to have very little at all. So I tend to favor much more structural reforms in the way in which we organize labor markets or financial markets or intellectual property markets, whatever it is, rather than trying to do everything through a single level known as the Fed. Um, So it's a very complicated position. It's not as though I think the man um, is uninformed. I think he knows a lot more about the subject than I do. Uh, But it's also kind of a very complicated inquiry, particularly in a short essay, to figure out how it is you understand the Fed, not only for what it does, but also for the way in which it links together with other kinds of institutions, which obviously have an impact upon the way in which the economy works. I do think uh, that Controlling and stabilizing currency is an extremely important function. In one sentence, I think the simple explanation is this. Many contracts for mortgages and real estate, uh, industrial loans, and so forth, for long periods of time, if the inflation number is is constant. Two percent is kind of an ideal of one kind or another. It means that long-term planning does not have to add in complications to take into account changes in interest rates, which can influence the value of long-term contracts. That was the kind of Milton Friedman approach to this particular subject. Stabilize this. If you then get the currency variability out of the situation, you can spend your time dealing with long-term contracts, trying to worry about the business contingencies that you had to fake. So I tend to be on the less discretion side, I think washes that way. And when you have less discretion, you have less political power. And if you have less political power, I think there's a less of a probability that every time there's a change in commission or a control, you're going to get some sharp flip flop in policy. And continuity with respect to financial rates is, I think, extremely important. Jobs is better handled somewhere else.
0: Well, speaking of handling things somewhere else, I'm, I'm won't weigh in on economic policy here. I I can't pretend to say I, I know what's good policy. That's why I defer to folks like you and Warsh and John Taylor and over at AEI, my colleagues like Michael Strain, to weigh in on the economics. What really got my attention was the last two paragraphs of Warsh's piece. And people forgive me, I just want to read the quote here. He's writing it against the backdrop of the Fed's expanded role in, in, in the, the current economic crisis. And I, also, I think implicitly, he's writing as the backdrop of calls among Democratic congressmen to officially expand the Fed's mandate by adding to its dual mandate of, of full employment and price stability, um, the mandate that the Fed promote the alleviation of, of income inequality, however they define that. And so against that backdrop, here's, what, here's how he concludes his op-ed. He says, for now, the Fed sits atop the commanding heights of the economy, its growing authority unquestioned, its pride manifest. But over time, citizens in a constitutional system tend to grow very wary of omnipotent institutions. The Fed is exercising understandable but unprecedented power at an ahistorical moment. Without vigilance, uh, it will risk morphing into a general purpose agency. America cannot afford to have its central bank lose its independence, gravitas, and record of success. And then he says, to paraphrase Ben Franklin on the institutional challenge, a central bank, if you can keep it. I was really struck by this because I I too have been watching, like a lot of people been watching, the Fed's growing role, its role in not just in economic matters, but its regulatory role, especially in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008 and Dodd-Frank's enactment. And we've seen this institution that after a century of its existence has built up certain accumulated institutional capital. Um, And now people want to spend that capital by giving the Fed significant power over other subjects and really taking issues that are best handled outside of the Fed and maybe outside of federal government altogether and handing them over to the Fed either officially or unofficially we've seen that we've seen that in a few places um in the financial context where people have called upon the fec the cfpb and others to effectively regulate domestic policy through financial markets and we've seen it in so many other ways where whether it's looking to the military on things like energy policy or just looking to bureaucracy in general looking to take all these issues out of the political realm and give them to these sort of these bureaucracies, often well-respected bureaucracies like the Fed. What I think these people don't understand is they're sowing the seeds for the destruction of that institution. And Warsh gets this immediately. He realizes that if you take these issues and hand them to the Fed to decide, the Fed will very soon lose the political and institutional capital that these people are counting on in the first place. The fastest way to really undermine an institution's um, viability is to commit it to the, the task of solving all of these other problems outside of its expertise. And so I think that the calls to hand more and more power to the Fed are, they're, they're a terrible idea, but especially a terrible idea for those who actually want to see the institution itself succeed. But then again, we've seen this over and over again in the efforts to hand so many issues over to either the unelected bureaucracy or, or unelected judges, rather than actually allow our democratic processes to sort these things out.
1: Well, I agree with everything you said except the last sentence. I don't think this is so much democratic, non-democratic processes for judges. But essentially, the basic point that Walsh is making that I 100% agree with is you cannot use one number to achieve two goals. And so I talked about job creation. He talks about inequality of wealth. There is no way on God's earth that the Fed can do anything by changing interest rates that will influence that particular dimension. It's hard enough to do this even through a tax system with progressive taxes, because as we now know, if you're not somebody who's on the tax system to begin with, progressivity doesn't have much effect. It's also every time you try to raise taxes at the top in order to subsidize the bottom, you have various incentive effects that you may not want. It's just a very difficult thing to start to do. And so you're absolutely right. The moment you start giving a task for which it is ill-equipped, it cannot do the things for which it's well-equipped to do. It starts to look like a political body and it will lose its intellectual capital and it's independent. And in that sense, you're right about the judiciary. That is, its independence, I think, is an extremely important value in this particular case. Uh, So what the Democrats are calling for, I think, is actually a complete destruction of the way in which this particular system works. And so I want to say that notwithstanding the fact that there are disagreements perhaps between us as to how interest rates ought to be calculated when it's the sole task, the idea that multitasking through the Fed is something that we want, it seems to me to be, and I agree with you, a horrible mistake so much so that now we have reasonable agreement between us what's our next topic as you said adam
0: well it's the courts uh in a way Uh, i'm glad glad you have confidence in the courts because uh, they have an important job coming up
1: too probably (laughs) Uh, confidence Um, in quotation marks well the um
0: one of the editorials also in today's wall street journal is titled will courts pick the next president if the election is close the fallout can make bush v gore look like an ice cream social we're now just a couple of months out from the election um, but not necessarily from the resolution of the election, which might take much, much longer, depending on questions about the election's uh, security, questions about uh, mail-in ballots coming in after the election date, and so on. Just a few uh, weeks ago, I had on on my other podcast over at AEI, uh, John Fortier of the Bipartisan Policy Center, where we walked through sort of an hour's worth of discussion of uh, the upcoming election. Uh, by the end i was terrified and i guess i'm curious richard what's your sense of uh of the election coming
1: up are you hopeful that'll it it'll go off without a hitch I think terrified is probably the most kind thing you could say about it. No, I've never been more frightened about a potential election in my life than this one. Um, uh, an ice cream social is a very accurate description. I was quite active at the time that Bush before it took place and wrote a number of pieces for the Wall Street Journal and so forth, and uh, thought that it just ended by a hair in December 8th of that year. I think, in effect, the judges intervening in the way in which was suggested in the Wall Street Journal, saying that you have to not withstanding your own election statutes, keep things open a little bit longer, uh, not worry about the smudges on the postmarks and all the rest of that stuff, is an open invitation for disaster. You will probably have, under these circumstances, to count millions of ballots. There is no control whatsoever under the chain of custody. We don't know which ballots are going to be taken out. We don't know which ballots, in fact, are going to be done. If it's a close election and in 50 states instead of one, you're going to have to look at postmarks the way in which you had to look at hanging chains. As if you recall, in Dade County and in similar places throughout Florida. There is no way you can do it. Uh, there are 50 different state organizations, each subject to its own rule, each subject to uncertain litigation uh, that's going to take place in multiple states. I think what has to happen right now, and I don't care who brings the action, somebody has to get this thing up to the Supreme Court. And the ruling has to be, if something is not there on November 3rd, it does not count. Uh, You have plenty of time right now to organize your mail ballots, and the sooner we get this done, the better it is. Uh, To do it in any other particular way means, in effect, that you're going to have to relitigate. At this point, you're going to have to have two administrations trying to form for the next sort of election. You're going to have Trump speaking that this thing is a giant fraud. Uh, He's going to have at least some plausibility because the same friendly folks who are in big progressive cities uh, will have an influence here, and, and they. hatred of the president is so utterly complete and total uh, that they would regard perhaps uh, defalcation as a noble event. Uh, That could be true. It could be false. We do not know. But we do not want this thing to happen. And the judges who say that the integrity of the system depends on counting every ballot have got it completely wrong. The integrity of the system comes to meeting a confident, finite result in time for the government to take place. And if stray ballots are lost, that's a high price. That's a very low price. I'm sorry. Uh, to pay in order to keep the system going there. So, Adam, again, I mean, it seems to me that uh, we have to rethink our agenda today because we pretty much agree on both of the issues that you've raised thus far.
0: Well, wait a second. Not so fast, Richard. Oh,
1: I, good. I feel better already. As, we, <laughs> yeah. as
0: as you were talking, I'm trying to bring up the, the sort of the dates that are set by law. I, I understand the, the need to to get the absentee ballot resolved as quickly as possible after the election. But did I hear you right? You said that all
1: absentee ballots need should be received. By election day? I've said that's what the ideal should be. Now, of course, it's difficult. Every particular state may have different rules. I think some say you get it in within three days, it's going to count. Um, So I think the more precise way to put it is I don't like those statutes. I don't think you could rule them unconstitutional, but I don't think there ought to be any equitable exceptions which allow judges to extend any deadline beyond those deadlines that are set by statute. That's probably a more accurate way to say it. And even if you give the three days in several states, the inability to come up with a clear winner on the night of the election i think is just a huge source of instability suppose what happens is that we not only have a litigation but we also have people taking to the streets yeah. I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, I just was today and I went in and I got myself a hamburger at a local place and I said, credit card only. And I said, why? And they said, well, uh, in the last two riots in Chicago, they broke down and they stole everything out of our cash register. I mean, and you could get that kind of destruction on election day. I mean, if people are really angry, um, I, I just do not understand how we are courting disaster. Uh, the president, of course, has a rare capacity of throwing hot oil on an open flame. Uh, The Democrats in their own slightly quieter but equally hysterical way can do the same thing. Uh, The partisan divides have become enormous. So people regard this as a kind of a life and death election. And when you think that, you know, it's not a Me Too election, uh, there's no dimes worth of difference between the two candidates. People are going to do things. Now, which people? It doesn't have to be everybody, Adam. It just has to be enough people who are so convinced of the justice of their cause that they're willing to take shortcuts with respect to means to end. And if you're talking about a million potential actors and you just get 1% of those things, you get 10,000 people coming around the world all the more sufficient to create mayhem through litigation, riots, and everything else. No, I am genuinely panicked about uh, this kind of situation, and I have no confidence whatsoever in our institutions to deal with it. I hope the Supreme Court gets involved very early, demands, doesn't ask for cert, but takes cert on an expedited basis and gets this thing resolved by October 1st. That's my hope.
0: Well, hope springs, a, hope springs eternal, Richard. I don't think... Yeah, I, I, look, I
1: might not, hope and probabilities are two different calculations, right? So,
0: you know, you and I, we, we spent a lot of time on this show. I mean, let's be honest. We spent a lot of time criticizing things, complaining about things, worrying about things. Maybe we should stop and, and point out, you know, the, the bright side of this. I mean, it's such a divided time. It's like you you cannot get Republicans and Democrat, Democrats to agree on anything, it seems. Everything is a disagreement. Well, we finally found one thing that everybody agrees upon, namely, if your side loses the election, it was illegitimate, right? Because that's the one thing that you see both sides of this uh, argument really racing towards. We've seen it already with President Trump and, and, and his, you know, his ridiculous comment about everybody, people should vote twice just to be careful, vote, vote early in writing and then show up on the election day. Um, just God, like said, God help
1: us. I mean, and count right. both votes or just one. Well, no, only count one, and and, and uh, which you know, one? And how do we know? Right, <laughs> right.
0: And but then oh, it, at, the, at the same time, uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, was the first out of the gates to say that Joe Biden should not concede under any circumstances. Um, and you now have uh, Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, and others, you know, sort of preemptively trying to delegitimize the other side's win. The dynamic with in-person voting versus mail mail in voting could be could really exacerbate things if say president trump's voters all go in person or you know disproportionately vote in person and and biden's voters disproportionately vote by mail you could have a an election night you know strongly in favor of trump But people thinking, well, what about the ballots that are going to come in later? You'll have the TV stations, at least some of them perhaps, reluctant to call a race in favor of Trump if he's well, if you know, if it's close because they'll want to see the ballots come in afterwards. Then, of course, all of the competing narratives from the White House and from Democrats. But I'll tell you what really worries me the most in conjunction with the sort of preemptive delegitimization of the election, maybe part and parcel of that is each side is basically pre-announcing that the other side will do whatever it needs to do to steal the election. And then almost like uh, Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine preparing for a possible terrorist attack, you know, 20 years ago saying, if there's a 1% risk of something bad happening, we need to treat it as a certainty. You sort of talk about what the other side is going to do. And then you say, well, we need to preemptively plan against all of that. And you get this rhetorical arms race from both sides. I saw another op-ed, I think, in the Washington Post over the weekend by, by God Rosa, help us, by, by Rosa Brooks, perhaps, talking about a war game exercise where various political actors got together to try to game out how an election night, how election night chaos might play out. Um, and and I'd say, while one should always be prepared. I'd say, talking in public about such radical preparations inevitably inflames everybody and turns these sort of worries into self-fulfilling prophecies. And so what I really wish is even though we're here on a podcast talking about everything that can go wrong, I wish the candidates themselves and their supporters would calm down. They're of all the people who should be worrying, they're the ones who probably have the greatest duty to keep things on on a level on an even keel precisely so that they themselves the ones who are involved in the election don't you know, don't
1: blow up the election themselves. But Adam Webman, a perfect virtue on this occasion. We're basically asking people to try to cool it. Uh, the difficulty that we find out is cool to what degree temperature. And you hit the problem. Uh, the anticipation is that the mail votes will be heavily democratic, and that the actual electoral votes will not. I mean, the the in person votes will not. Um, it's also, by the way, I mean when you're dealing with these things, you know, where do you vote? So, for example. Um, to take the COVID nightmare. There are many people who live in New York City who have now taken up residence in some other place. Can they vote in two states? Is there any way in which you're going to be able to check whether or not they have done so? If you recall, I think there was an election in if I'm not mistaken, in New Hampshire, where large numbers of people from Massachusetts announced that they were going to become residents of the state of may, of New Hampshire, got right in ballots, filled them in, may have switched the election around, and then never moved. Um, and that's just yet another problem that you start to have with these things. And for all we know, they may have voted at home. Uh, whether there's going to be a permanent record of who did what particular ballot in order to deal with the double counting is going to be yet another nightmare on this. Uh, look, I mean, we know that complexity breeds uncertainty, breeds distrust. Just recall what the Democrats did in their Iowa caucus primary. you know, A tiny little operation completely bollocks up for weeks uh, because they had no clear control over the software, which was trying to administer their particular program. And this is going to be the case. I mean, one of the things that we know whether you're talking about the Internal Revenue Service, obsolete in technology by 30 years, talking about the CDC, obsolete in technology by 30 years, talking about these guys, is obsolete in technology by how much, it is that you need to have a rule that recognizes the simplicity and the inadequacy of the institutional structure. And those structures dictate very simple kinds of rules. And what we have here is exactly the opposite. So um, this is also a jurisprudential failure. Um, Where I come from, uh, brilliance is thinking the way in which you organize a highway is to have a big yellow road down the middle where a lane separated. Uh, Today, the definition of really grateful insight is you have a 14-factor test to decide everything. that may be work for academics, but it's institutional suicide. It's fine when you have only one case that you have to decide, but it's not fine when you have to use fourteen factors to resolve an analysis dealing with a hundred, or two hundred, or three hundred thousand ballots in an intermediate-sized state. So I think the jurisprudence of this, the, the whole world, is just going into a kind of a nightmare. Our general intellectual style, I think, has been disastrous. Our institutional capabilities are wanting. Our political rhetoric is over the top. Uh, We do not have two candidates that represent the best of all things that we could possibly have because we have the primary system, which tends to lead to institutional polarization. We are heading for a huge maelstrom, um, and I see... Myself was absolutely hopeless for anybody uh, to pull it back at this particular point in time. The only person I trust to run this, Adam, is you. The only person you should trust is me. And the two of us together can rule a country of 330 plus million people,
0: right? Well, okay, Richard, let me, let me try to be Mr. Brightside on this one
1: again. Oh, good. I'm glad.
0: Sure. Maybe everything might go wrong uh, when people cast their votes, but at some point, it will be resolved. And then we just turn it over to the Electoral College, which will have everything under control, especially after the Supreme Court's decision uh, this term in the Chiafalo case. Am I right?
1: Oh, God, of course you're wrong. Um, Chiafalo essentially is the case which asks the question as to whether or not the faithless elector in the Electoral College should be allowed to have his or her set. And this was a very complicated kind of an opinion because the current system that we have now is a classic illustration of making a series of very complicated but sensual adaptations in order to deal with the fact that the original constitutional structure for choosing the president and the vice president was fatally flawed, not only because it didn't recognize that you could have political parties and you did not want to have a president and vice president from opposite parties and all the very complicated mechanics associated with the 12th Amendment, which every time I put it down, I forget. It's also, uh, you don't want any deliberation whatsoever. Uh, The basic situation is they found that if you brought everybody together and asked them to talk, Nobody could handle the agency question. What should they do with a set of unforeseen circumstances when they're trying to represent in those days perhaps the legislature uh, because it wasn't for the most part a popular election? And they realized that the thing could not possibly work. And so, what they did is they said, we have to pledge our electors so they are non deliberative bodies. And, you know, Justice Kagan, in her, I think, very confused opinion, said, well, these people are still cho- choosing what's going on, but they're not choosing in the way in which a judge who's appointed also chooses to support one particular party and another. Uh, in fact, since there's zero discretion, the correct rule is to have no named electors whatsoever and just to have a mail in system with a count and nobody to meet. Uh, but we need to do the other thing because of the fictions that are involved with having this college. And so what we do is we essentially decide that we're going to make them pledge delegates. Then if you read it against the constitutional text, it does not wash. Uh, Larry Lessig and I had a debate on this at Harvard, I think it was on March 4th or 5th, just before the whole COVID thing came down. Uh, And Larry essentially argued correctly, in my view, that if you really took the word appointment, when you appoint somebody to somebody, you don't have a chance to tie them up. Most of the other appointments are made for people who are given some discretion, particularly when they're put in senior offices, subject to constitutional confirmation. Um, But the answer to Larry is don't look at the word appointment. Once you realize that the electoral college cannot be a divisive body, then you have a new constitution, what I call the prescriptive constitution, which comes up. And for the next 200 years or so, we use the bound delegates in order to get rid of the discretion problem when we're not allowed to simply excise the electoral college and simply have an electoral count the way in which it is and undoing that would be a disaster so now what you do is you superimpose this on this election and what you do is you wanted to say well let's allow faithless electors which you cannot do at this particular point maybe um and you say you're going to allow those things, what are they supposed to do? when the cacophonies start. Uh, and anything they do is going to give bitter resentments on the part of large numbers of people. You don't want to have it. Now, there were two statutes, Adam, and I'll just stop at this. One of them says you could yank the fellow and put in somebody who was going to stay correctly, and I think that's fine. The other statute said you could fine them a $1,000. Now, think of this You are the elector, right? And somebody's going to fine you a thousand dollars. Instead of voting for Trump, you decide to vote for Colin Powell or whatever it is. I mean, I could get together a slush fund, uh, which would have, if you did this nationwide, a half a million dollars, right, for 500-odd electors and so forth. And I could buy the whole election if the only thing you have to do is to pay them all. So the Supreme Court really needed to be much clearer about this and to say that specific performance is the only remedy that works. Uh, I think that this decision was most welcome. If we had faithful, faithless electors coming into this election, it would be just another level of mayhem that we do not need. If Anything, the decision was not strong enough. What's interesting about it academically is that originalism, which was the approach that uh, Justice Kagan took, uh, is, is simply unable to deal with these things. As you've known for years, I've said, as we develop institutions that deviate from the original constitutional plan, and they've been embedded for 100 or 200 years. You don't want to mess with them by using an originalist-type situation. You don't want to say, we've had this debate, or I've had it with John You rather. A corporation is not a citizen and so forth. They have a, no federal court can have the diversity jurisdiction with the corporation. We've flip that rule out close to 200 years ago, we don't want to go back now. So the one point I want to make on this, and I'll let you decide what you want to do with it, is that uh, we do not need another moving part. It's the same thing as you mentioned with finances. We want fixed rules in order to determine interest rates. We want fixed rules to be able to count the ballots. And, And anything else that we have would just make an impossible situation worse.
0: Well, Richard, I think I agree with all of that, and in any event, I don't have time to disagree because we only have a few moments left, and I want to focus on one last issue. It's not one that you and I chatted about in advance, so here I'm going to try to catch you um, catch you off guard. Let's imagine that the election goes poorly, but it's fixed. It, it's 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 solved. The electoral college. You know, even if it falls on its. Uh, hold on. Let me try this one more time. Let me just start it all over again. Okay, Scott. All right, I'm going to cut to the chase. Well, Richard, I think I agree with all that. And in any event, I don't have time to disagree because we're almost out of time and there's one last issue I wanted to raise. Okay, maybe the election will be a disaster. Maybe the Electoral College will be a disaster. But at the very least, we won't have pandemonium in the streets for two reasons. One is President Trump is already sending federal personnel. He's been sending federal personnel into the cities and so they can solve the problem. And if not, we'll just defund them. Because a few days ago, on September 2nd, President Trump sent a memo to the attorney general and the head of OMB calling on uh, the Justice Department and OMB to do everything they can to withhold funds from what they call uh, anarchic jurisdictions. Richard, is this constitutional or not?
1: I I suspect that it is is constitutional, but I don't know if it's wise. You said that we only have a couple of minutes. The issue is the federal government has monopoly power. And so there are always constraints of fair dealing and efficiency and like in an antitrust situation. And so we'd have to know in each particular case, whether he's doing it for a good reason or for bad reason, motive will matter. And so will other things. Um, I understand his frustration. If it turns out that you're going to send money to help the police and every single dime of that is going to be diverted into social welfare agencies of one kind or another, he can say no. Uh, the other thing, of course, which is of this is to what extent does the president have to wait for an invitation to send in or nationalize the garden? To what extent can he do it himself? I think the right answer to that is he can do it unilaterally and basically bring these people into national control when the governors, uh, unless there's going to be a civil war, have nothing to say against it. That's what Eisenhower did when he tried to situate the situation, rectify the situation in Little Rock with Orville Forrest, who was the governor at that particular time. So I think he can do it. Um, He's been very reluctant to actually do this himself. And I don't know whether it's because he doesn't want to risk greater confrontation or he wants to basically have progressive cities burned to his cinders so that he can say that they um, have not discharged their situation well. But all you've done is you've made me more pessimistic, Adam, because now there's yet another degree of uncertainty. And just think of it this way. You get people casting their mail ballots on, say, October 1st, and then there's some horrific event one way or the other which wants them to change their mind What are they supposed to
0: do? Well, that is a great point. That's one of the reasons why I do worry about the expansion of the voting process so far in advance. On President Trump's latest memo, the the defunding of anarchy jurisdiction, it was in a way a trick question because like all presidential documents, it contains boilerplate that says that it's limited Ah, to the maximum extent uh, allowed by law. So on its face, it doesn't violate the law per se, but it certainly um, flips on its head the idea that Congress, not the president, has the power of the purse. What I think is interesting about this, maybe ironic, is that to the extent that President Trump actually tries to operationalize this and defund jurisdictions because he's dissatisfied with their enforcement of law, he might actually find himself running into the back half of the NFIB decision, the Supreme Court's decision from a few years ago where they upheld the yeah. mandate but struck down Medicaid expansion because it was an unconstitutional I can't remember, an unconstitutional condition. condition. And there, at least, the condition came from Congress. Here it comes from the president. So I don't actually expect the White House or the, I'm sorry, the Justice Department to actually operationalize this. But then again, I've been surprised in the past. I'm sure I'll be surprised in the future. And on that note, Richard, I think we have to say
1: goodbye. Fond farewell, and you may save your tears until after the show. I already have my handkerchief out, ready to wipe.
0: as always well as always uh it's a pleasure to be here with you richard thanks to our our listeners for tuning in and please tune in again for the next episode of reasonable disagreements this podcast has been a production of the hoover institution where we advance ideas that define a free society for more information about our work And to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit
1: hoover.org.